Hello again. Would you go ahead and open your Bibles to the book of Joshua? Joshua, the Old Testament, the sixth book of the Bible. We're going to Joshua chapter 1. After the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, the Lord said to Joshua, the son of Nun, Moses' assistant, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now, therefore, arise and go over this Jordan, you and all this people, into the land that I am giving to them, to the people of Israel. Every place that the sole of your foot will tread upon, I have given to you, just as I promised to Moses, from the wilderness and this Lebanon, as far as the great river, the river Euphrates. All the land of the Hittites to the great sea toward the going down of the sun shall be your territory. No man shall be able to stand before you all the days of your life. Just as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will not leave you or forsake you. Be strong and courageous, for you shall cause this people to inherit the land that I swore to their fathers to give them. Only be strong and very courageous, being careful to do according to all the law that Moses my servant commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right hand or to the left, that you may have good success wherever you go. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have good success. Have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not be frightened and do not be dismayed, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. And Joshua commanded the officers of the people, Pass through the midst of the camp and command the people. Prepare your provisions, for within three days you are to pass over this Jordan and go take possession of the land that the Lord your God is giving you to possess. And to the Reubenites, the Gadites, and the half-tribe of Manasseh, Joshua said, Remember the word that Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded you, saying, The Lord your God is providing you a place of rest and will give you this land. Your wives, your little ones, and your livestock shall remain in the land that Moses gave you beyond the Jordan. But all the men of valor among you shall pass over armed before your brothers and shall help them until the Lord gives rest to your brothers as he has to you. And they also take possession of the land that the Lord your God is giving them. Then you shall turn to the land of your possession and shall possess it and the land that Moses, the servant of the Lord, gave you beyond the Jordan towards the sunrise. And they answered Joshua, all that you have commanded us, we will do. And wherever you send us, we will go. Just as we obeyed Moses in all things, so we will obey you. Only may the Lord your God be with you, as he was with Moses. Whoever rebels against your commandment and disobeys your words, whatever you command him, shall be put to death. Only be strong and courageous. This is the word of the Lord. George uh, Santayana famously said, Those who do not know history are doomed to repeat it. And the quote is an important one for us today because we're kicking off this study of the book of Joshua. And Joshua certainly is part of the Christian history, as it were. Particularly in our English Bibles. The English Bible is laid out the historical books, the wisdom literature, and then the prophetic books. Uh, And so, essentially, what you have is this is history. Uh, Although, it is important to notice that while there's a fair bit of history in this book, it's not just plain, raw history. And we get this picture because the Hebrew Bible lays things out a little bit differently. The Hebrew Bible is called the Tanakh, which stands for the Torah, the Nevi'im, and the Ketuvim, or the law, the prophets, and the writings. And in that Hebrew layout of the Bible, Joshua is part of the former prophets, which is to say that this is a prophetic history. It's a theological history. 
Uh, Joshua is not a book that it's intending to give us this just kind of rigid, strict history, and it's not following a tight chronology, but rather it's communicating theological truth using real historical events. So with that in mind, those who do not know history are doomed to repeat it is still very much important because this book is a Christian book. It is a book that is telling us about the history of God's people. And it's also teaching us lessons about God in the process. But in order to understand any historical period, you have to kind of know what came before. What is the prehistory, as it were? Well, the prehistory to the book of Joshua is the first five books of the Bible. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And in particular, the most important part of that prehistory for understanding Joshua begins in Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. When God called a man named Abram, and this is what God said in Genesis 12, 1 through 3. Now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land I will show you. And I will make you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Did you hear the promise God gave to Abram? He said he's taken him to a land, and that would be the land that Joshua is about to lead Israel into. And he said in that land, he'd make them a great nation. But there's just one problem. Abram and Sarai had no kids with which to become a great nation. And Abram never actually took possession of the land. This is such a problem that God creates a covenant with Abraham to reassure him of this reality in Genesis 15. He cuts a covenant with him. And he tells him that he will most indeed have a son, and they'll name him Isaac. And that, that son's descendants, his offspring, will go to another nation. They will go to Egypt, and they will be there for 400 years, where they were, will be afflicted and oppressed. In Genesis fifteen sixteen, we read, Abraham's offspring shall come back here to this land that God had shown Abram, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. So that's some of the historical backdrop. That's, that's what all God had said was going to happen. So the backdrop is Abram and Sarai, who are later renamed Abraham and Sarah, give birth to Isaac, and Isaac and his wife Rebekah have Esau and Jacob. From Jacob come the 12 tribes of Israel. And at the end of Genesis, the 12 tribes head down to Egypt. And God raises up Moses to bring them out. This is the Exodus. And Exodus chapters 3 through 15 recount that history. The rest of the book of Exodus... Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy take place during a 40-year period where the Israelites are wandering in the wilderness. Well, why are they wandering? Well, they're wandering because God had taken them out of Egypt and was going to take them into the promised land, but they did not go. They sent 12 spies, and only two of those spies actually came back with a positive report saying, yes, the land is ready for us. The Lord will give it to us. The other 10 were fearful, and one of those two spies was Joshua. The other was a man named Caleb, which we'll hear more about in this book. They were the only two of that generation who were going to actually get to go into the promised land. Everyone else died off during that 40 years of wandering in the wilderness. And so here in Joshua, Moses, the great leader, has died. And the torch has been passed to Joshua, who will lead the people into the land. So all that to say, the book of Joshua is about God fulfilling his promises to his people. Nearly 600 years had passed from the time Abram had received the initial promise that his offspring would receive the land. And that promise is going to be fulfilled in this book. 
So that's what this is. It's a, it's a fulfillment of God's promise to his people. And it's a history of that fulfillment. So with that in mind, I do want to do a little more work in the book as a whole, since we're in, just getting into the study. So we'll have three points for today. The first one will be the structure of Joshua, this is in the book of Joshua. And then chapter one falls into two parts. It's verses one through nine, which is the promise of God. And then verses 10 through 18 is the command of Joshua. So the structure of Joshua, the promise of God, and the command of Joshua. So first, let's look at the structure of the book of Joshua. Uh, There's some disagreement, but many commentators believe Joshua falls into kind of uh, four major parts. And the first one is chapters one through five, you could call the preparation for entry. They're getting ready to go into the promised land. In chapters six through 12, you have the actual entry into the land and the fighting of the battles. And then in chapters 13 through 21, you have allocating the land. And finally, 22 through 24 is kind of keeping the land or keeping the covenant so that way they will stay in the land. But what's fascinating is that chapter 1, verses 1 through 9, kind of give us a roadmap for the book. We see this in other biblical books. Uh, The Gospel of John does this. If you read the first 18 or so verses of John's Gospel, you'll see this really clear roadmap of themes that'll flow out later. And that's what we get here in these first nine verses. Verse 2 describes the crossing of the Jordan. So that's chapters 1 through 5. Verse 3 outlines the fact that there will be a conquest. They're going to have to go through the land. And that's chapters 6 through 12. Verse 4 implies that the land will be distributed, which we said is chapters 13 through 21. And then finally, 5 through 9 speaks of the life of Joshua. He's speaking to Joshua and all that will take place in his life. And Joshua's life is really prominent there in those last chapters. So again, Joshua's a very highly structured book. Uh, And it's a book that Joshua did not finish writing. We know that because it talks about his death and the morning of his death. And so there was clearly some editing that took place later. But the important thing is this, that it is not just raw history. It is theological history, teaching God's people about God's faithfulness to his promises. But it is also a book that particularly in our day and age can be quite challenging because of one of the major themes that runs through this book. We mentioned it. That is the conquest of the land, the conquest of the land of Canaan. One commentator, his name is Dan Hawk, has commented on how Joshua has been read into our nation's past. He says this, Manifest destiny was itself constructed from the building blocks of more primal narrative. That is the story of the conquest of Canaan in the book of Joshua. So our history of manifest destiny, he says some of those ideas were borrowed from Joshua. He said this sentiment leads many to, or sorry, rather the story of the, the Canaanite Uh, conquest. Although manifest destiny incorporates other building blocks, he says, at the heart of it all is this idea of conquering indigenous peoples, appropriating the land's bounty, uh, and the killing of mass people. And it's a prominent thread in the book of Joshua and in our nation's history. One pastor reflected on these thoughts. He said this, many Americans see the nation's history as one of divine mandate and protection. We are the city on a hill, the elect and called ones, And this sentiment leads many to ignore the dark side of our history, the genocide of Native American population, the enslavement of Africans, Jim Crow, segregation, the incarceration of Japanese citizens, imperialist control of Philippines. We could go on and on. And so you start to see how the themes of this book have been used potentially in our history for justifying some of the things that have been done. Now, I bring this up because the decision to preach this book happened last year long before the current turmoil and events of this year, long before those challenges. 
And this is not a time to get into the debated views over America's history and the different takes. But what I, again, have to say as clearly as I can, as I said during the Revelation series, is America is not and never will be the new Israel. We are not some divinely sanctioned nation. Uh, There is no Christian nations. God has called a people to himself from every tongue and tribe and nation. Um, So whatever we do, we cannot allow this book to be used that way as a map for American history. So with that context in mind, let's consider, though, for the second, the difficulty of this conquest of Canaan, because it is a serious difficulty. How can a loving God tell the Israelites to wipe out a people? I mean, every man, woman, child, and animal, as we'll see. Well, before addressing that question, it might be interesting to you to note that historically, this wiping out of other people groups was something that happened in the ancient world. We have records from the 18th century BC uh, at Mari. It was understood that the military leader was engaging in holy war. He was claiming that land for his people by wiping out everyone upon it. And this kind of holy war is repeated many times in ancient history. So it wouldn't have been this shocking thing to the Israelites. They would have known about such things. However, there is still that reality. How can a loving God command this type of war to take place? And there's a number of responses that we could give. But let me start by asking this question. We have to start by acknowledging That in the question is an assumption. How can a loving God command this? You see, it is because I believe that God is perfectly loving that I have to believe in the reality of judgment towards all people who would turn others away from him, who would shield his love and glory. Let me explain it this way. Jonathan Edwards wrote a book called The End for Which God Created the World. And he discusses that the ultimate end for or reason for why God created the world is that since God is the most perfect and glorious of beings, he created the universe in order to share his greatness with his creatures. Here's what Edwards writes. It is fit, since there is an infinite fountain of light and knowledge and holiness, moral excellence and beauty, that it should flow out in communicated holiness. As there is an infinite fullness of joy and happiness, so these should have an emanation And become a fountain flowing out in abundant streams as beams from the sun. Thus, it appears reasonable to suppose that it was God's last end that there might be a glorious and abundant emanation of his infinite fullness. So in other words, God created the world because he is the infinite fountain of all perfections. And they are flowing out from him. And so the best possible thing in the world is for people to get to experience this God of all perfections. But notice, if God is perfect in goodness and love, then he's also perfect in justice. And if the greatest goodness and ultimate reason why we were created is to experience and enjoy the perfections of God, then anyone who keeps or hinders other people from experiencing the perfections of God is an enemy of the ultimate good for which the world was created. And this is the problem of sin. Every single human being since the fall has both actively and passively denounced or diminished or concealed the glory of God in many ways. Which is to say, we've all done the very opposite of what we were created to do. See, this is why God told Abram that for 600 years, the Amorites were going to wait. Their iniquity was not full. Notice the patience of God. See, God would have been perfectly just the moment Adam and Eve fell to wipe them out. That would have been just 
Instead, God was merciful and patient and long-suffering. God would have been perfectly just to let Abraham wipe out the Amorites in his day. But instead, God was merciful and patient and long-suffering, giving them a stay of execution of some 600 years. So that way, as with the psalmist, they would be able to see that the heavens declare the glory of God. Maybe some would turn and repent. We will get a picture of one of those happening in Rahab's life. So all that is to say, it is for this reason that many commentators have noted that the conquest of Canaan is described in language that resembles the flood. It states that all that breathed died. One commentator put it well. As with the flood and the overthrow of Sodom and Gomorrah, and the the conquest of Canaan uniquely foreshadows God's perfect and just judgment on those who oppose him and pursue life autonomously. See, since Joshua is primarily a theological book, what we are to see then is this is a book meant to cause us to think deeply about the holiness and perfections of God. It is meant to cause us to acknowledge the countless ways we seek to dethrone him and enthrone ourselves. Now, I know that doesn't answer all the potential questions and difficulties of thinking through a thing like the conquest of Canaan. And if you have more questions, I'd be happy to talk to you about it. Please just reach out. We can set up a time to meet. But with that in mind, we need that overarching structure so that way we don't have to address it every time it comes up in the later chapters. And much more could be said about the structure of Joshua and its key themes. We'll address a couple of those in our next couple points. But with that, let's look at the promise of God. So in verses 1 through 9 there, we, we saw that there are two key themes that play out. One of them is the land and then the inheritance. So first, know that the land belongs to God. So it's not like the manifest destiny in that the people are taking a land that is not theirs. No, the land is God's land and God is giving it to them. He owns it. It's his land. And yet they have to inherit it by entering the land, by going and doing and taking So you see there's a tension there that's that's taking place. It's God's gift to give, and yet the people inherit it by taking it as well, by obeying. So you could say on the one hand, God says to Joshua, no one shall be able to stand before you all the days of your life. But on the other, God commands Joshua to be strong and courageous. On the one hand, God is giving this to them as a gift. But on the other hand, they have to go in, cross the Jordan, and fight for the land. And friends, this is how the Christian's relationship with God works. God enables us, empowers his people to obey, causes them to be born again by the Spirit's work. And they are ultimately guaranteed victory through Jesus. That's why, and yet, the author says of Hebrews says, without holiness, no one will see the Lord. And James will say that faith without works is dead. You see, friends, there's no such thing as being saved and yet never being changed. Both must be true. Because both of the work of the Holy Spirit. So friends, how is your faith being worked out? How is your salvation, which Jesus accomplished and the Spirit applied, changing you day by day? See, answering questions like these, thinking about these things, talking about this with other Christians should be a regular part of our life. Paul closes his letter to the Second Corinthians. Uh, he closes his letter saying, test yourself to see if you be in the faith. That should be a regular part of the Christian conversation, talking about how we're growing. That's why we believe in discipling, seeking to do each other spiritual good and point each other back to Jesus. Now, interestingly, Joshua's name means Yahweh saves. And so all of the commands and information there in verses 5 through 9 are singular. Read these one more time. So verse 5 through 9, and listen, these are all the yous are singular. They're to Joshua. So God says, 
no man shall be able to stand before you all the days of your life. Just as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will not leave you or forsake you. Be strong and courageous, for you shall cause this people to inherit the land that I swore to their fathers to give them. Only be strong and very courageous, being careful to do according to all the law that Moses, my servant, commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right hand or to the left, that you may have good success wherever you go. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have good success. Have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not be frightened and do not be dismayed, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. You see, once again, that tension that we see. Unless Joshua meditates upon and is obedient to God's law, his leadership will fail. So there's this tension that even Joshua is to have in his leadership, and he's to teach that to the people. Now, verses 5 through 9 have a very distinct structure. I don't know if you caught it. It opens up by God saying that he will never leave Joshua or forsake him. It shows God's presence with Joshua. And actually, 9b says the same thing. The Lord your God is with you wherever you go. So the outer layers is the structure of God's presence. And you go in a layer, in verses 6 through 9a, three times is this command of be strong and courageous. So God is with you, be strong and courageous. And then the middle core of that section, verses 7 and 8, is the focus on the command of God, of God meditating on his word day and night. So you see this structure here. In other words, the central piece of being strong and courageous will be demonstrated through his obedience to and meditation on God's word. One commentator put it this way. Constant, careful absorbing of the word of God leads to obedience to it. Lack of study, of, uh, lack of study uh, leads to a lack of obedience. Life in the kingdom of God must be lived out according to the word of God. That's what Joshua is, being, is seen here with these commands to him and the promises with him as well. And this command uh, from Joshua is actually quite familiar. It's going to be repeated in Psalm 1. How blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers. His delight will be in the law of the Lord, and on it he will meditate day and night. Well, that word for meditate there used in both Joshua and in Psalm 1 is to mutter, to mumble to yourself. Uh, you think about muttering over and over again. Think about those things that are constantly before your eyes and your attention. What are those things that we're constantly putting before our eyes? Sadly, so much of the media today uh, causes us to constantly think about and see and be muttering over uh, things of great sorrow. Not that those things should never be thought on. But what are those things that we should be thinking on, chewing on, muttering over? Well, friends, I'd encourage you to mutter on the immutability, the unchangeableness of God. That's what the fulfillment of God's promises show us. When God perfectly fulfills his promises, he's showing us that he doesn't change. That he promises 600 years before and yet he is fulfilling it now. Think on, chew on that reality. Richard Baxter put it like this. He said, Our houses may be burned, our goods may be consumed or stolen, our clothes will be worn out, our treasure here may be corrupted, but our God is unchangeable, the same forever. Our laws and customs may be changed, our governors and privileges changed, our company and employments and habitation changed, but our God is never changed. Our estates may change from riches to poverty, and our names that were honored may incur disgrace. Our health may quickly turn to sickness and our ease to pain, but still our God is unchangeable forever. Our friends are unconstant and may turn our enemies. 
Our peace may be changed into war and our liberty into slavery, but our God doth never change. Time will change customs, families, and all things here, but it changeth not our God. See, I know how overwhelming the news cycle and some of these things can be. All the uncertainty of the days, of different things that we're hearing. But friends, dwell on the reality of the unchangeability of God. He never changes. And the fulfillment of his promises in this book are proof of that reality. That our God is a rock and he never changes. See, if Joshua was faithful to meditate on these words, then he would have been reminded every time that a new battle came, that God is faithful to his promises. He would have seen again and again how God was fulfilling his word to his people. So, friends, those are the things I encourage you to mutter on, to think on, to meditate on, to be be, uh, strong and courageous by meditating on, muttering over, feeding your soul on the word of God. Well, that brings us to our last point here. Look at verses 10 through 18 again. And Joshua commanded the officers of the people, pass through the midst of the camp and command the people, prepare your provisions for within three days you are to pass over this Jordan and go in to take possession of the land that the Lord your God is giving you to possess. And to the Reubenites, the Gadites, and the half tribe of Manasseh, Joshua said, remember the word that Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded you, saying, the Lord your God is providing you a place of rest and will give you this land. Your wives, your little ones, and your livestock shall remain in the land that Moses gave you beyond the Jordan. But all the men of valor among you shall pass over armed before your brothers and shall help them until the Lord gives rest to your brothers as he has to you. And they also take possession of the land that the Lord your God is giving them. Then you shall turn, return to the land of your possession and you shall possess it. The land that Moses, the servant of the Lord, gave you beyond the Jordan toward the sunrise. And they answered Joshua, All that you have commanded us, we will do. And wherever you send us, we will go. Just as we obeyed Moses in all things, so we will obey you. Only may the Lord your God be with you as he was with Moses. Whoever rebels against your commandment and disobeys your words, whatever you command him, shall be put to death. Only be strong and courageous. So this section falls into two major parts here. First, uh, Joshua's command to Israel and then to the two and a half tribes. And then there's a response there in the last three verses. So those two and a half tribes, you haven't caught caught it from this here, is that the Jordan River split the territory of Israel. And on the west was going to be ten and a half tribes. And on, or uh, yeah, nine and a half tribes. I'm doing my math, ten and a half tribes. And over here is going to be two and a half tribes, right? So you have the Reubenites, the Gadites, and the half tribe of Manasseh. And when they had come up through the land in those last years, right before Moses died, uh, he had given them this territory east of the Jordan. But all the warriors were to cross the Jordan leaving their wives and kids and and cattle and all their things there. And all the men of valor were to cross over and help their brothers conquer the rest of the land. And Moses had given them this command. So Joshua reminds them of it. He reminds them of it because if they failed to do so, Joshua or Moses had called down a judgment upon them. He was going, they were going to be cursed if they failed to do it because the tendency was, well, we already have our land. We might as well get started. So Joshua reminds them of this command. Now, it's, it's not agreed upon whether the response in verses 16 through 18 are actually, uh, if they're going to be <clears throat> um, from just those two and a half tribes or from all Israel. Either way, it doesn't matter. The, the gist of it is that the people swear to obey. And they even base their obedience to Joshua on their obedience to Moses. 
don't know if you caught that. I always chuckle when I read this. I was reading this uh, at staff meeting and I just started laughing because it always cracks me up. They say, we will obey you just like we obeyed Moses in everything. Well, go back and reread all those books because they didn't obey Moses for anything. I mean, they were constantly sinning. I, this is the illustration I use. Like, this is like walking into the kitchen and finding the kid with their hands stuck in the cookie jars. Like, I never have stolen cookies. I never will steal cookies. I swear on my life. No, they're caught in the act. Uh, just go back and reread it. They constantly sin. I think if I would have been Joshua, I'd have said, please, whatever you do, obey better than you did for Moses. Uh, and yet they certainly intended to communicate that they wanted to obey because they go so far as to call down a curse on anyone who doesn't obey. They're in verse 18. Did you catch that? They said, if anyone doesn't listen to you, Joshua, we're going to put them to death. In other words, we're going to treat them like the Canaanites. We're going to put them under the judgment of God. Uh, so it's, it's, a very, it's a very potent thing. They're, they're absolutely affirming, we are in this. We are going with you. Um, so whether it's just the two and a half tribes or all of them, either way, the intent is very clear. They intend to carry this out. And one commentator has helpfully summarized this chapter like this then. So after Moses is, has died, Yahweh has not left Israel, he says, or us as orphans. We still have God's promise, God's presence, God's word, and God's people. And that should be enough until the kingdom of God comes in power and great glory. I thought that was a wonderful way to summarize this chapter. Friends, what hope we should have in God's promises, particularly in God's promise of the return of his son and of the life everlasting. What hope we should have in that. What encouragement. What hope we should have in God's presence with us. Even more than they, we have the Holy Spirit who indwells his people. And what hope we should have in God's word. We have seen so much more of it even fulfilled as we go back and read it. And what hope we should have that we are God's people if we have believed in Jesus. So a wonderful chapter. But there's one other theme that is just sprinkled in there. And this is going to grow throughout this whole book. So I want to touch on it for just a moment. And it is a theme very briefly mentioned. And it says that he will give them rest. Did you catch that? God will give you rest. Well, that theme of rest is incredibly important, not just for Joshua, but really for the whole Bible. Uh, the theme of rest runs the whole Bible. And there's kind of two different ver versions of it that, that weave through the Bible, as it were. In the book of Joshua, rest is bound up with being in the land and not having enemies attacking them. And the book will end with God has given them rest. The same kind of rest will be repeated in David's day. In 2 Samuel chapter 7, when God has given him rest from all his enemies around him. And that theme of rest ends up being tied into another theme of rest, which if you remember back in the creation of the world, what does it say? That on the seventh day, God rested from all his works. Now that kind of rest is different. That's not a rest from enemies, but it's, it's just a rest. It's the, the work has been finished. Well, these two themes of rest grow and they interweave throughout the whole Bible. As we've just mentioned a couple of them, uh, we could turn to Hebrews 3, 12 through 4, 11, And the author of Hebrews will bring these themes of rest together. And he starts off by saying God had promised them rest after bringing them up out of Egypt. And yet the spies didn't go in. And so then he says, but did Joshua give them rest? Well, no, because years later, David would write in Psalm 95. Today, if you hear the Lord's voice, do not harden your heart. And then he says, but there is still a greater rest because God says, I will rest. And so the author of Hebrews shows us how rest from enemies and rest from work ultimately become salvation. It becomes resting from the enemies of sin and death and hell. And it becomes resting in the work of God. 
And we get one little hint of this beautifully portrayed in Jesus' words when he says, Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. You see, friends, Jesus is God the Son, so he is able to grant us God's rest. He is able to take our yoke of sin and he take it to the cross. See, though we should have been put to death like the Israelites who disobeyed God's word countless times, yet God was merciful to us. Jesus died in our place so that we would inherit that eternal rest in God's presence and with God's people because God fulfilled his promises. So friends, Joshua 1 calls us to remember and rest in the promises of God. And for Christians in particular, that rest is in the fulfilled promises of salvation, which we already have now, but also in the future promises of God that are coming, in the return of the Son, and the ultimate rest that we will have in Him. May we be strong and courageous, meditating on these truths until His grace finally leads us home. Amen? Let's pray.